Hi everybody, welcome to my Friends with Wheels podcast. Today I talk with Linda Kendall Fields, a professor in the School of Social Work at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I hope you tune in for more episodes of this podcast. Enjoy, it's going to be a wonderful conversation. Okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the disability community. Well, my name is Linda Kendall Fields. Um, I have really had a lifelong connection to the disability community. One of the first persons I met when after I was born um, in Chicago, Illinois, was a woman named Mary Linden who lived next to our family in a um, suburb of Chicago. And um, Mary had um, cerebral palsy and used uh, a wheelchair. And um, the first photo of me wrapped up in my blanket coming home from the hospital was on Mary, it was on Mary's lap. And so from the very beginning, um, I had a significant person in my life with a disability. And uh, Mary um, was a very intelligent person who hadn't had the opportunity to have an integrated education. And this frustrated her a great deal. And as she grew and as I grew, um, we became closer. Actually, one of her favorite stories about me, which maybe is not a... Um, you know, a splashy story, but nevertheless, it tells us, it tells a significant tale. And that is that she heard me when I was about four or five years old in the backyard. She was my next door neighbor living with her parents. Um, a little girl cornered me um, in the backyard and said, what's wrong with that lady next door? Um, and I said, you mean Mary? And she said, yes. And I said, I don't know what you mean. There's nothing wrong with Mary. And, uh, and until she passed away at 86 or 87, actually, she loved to tell that story of how she overheard me telling my little friend that there was nothing wrong with Mary. And I think what that had, that very early memory and formative experience for me has done is to really illustrate the importance of an integrated community life that in my um, in my neighborhood in the 60s, times when things were pretty segregated for folks, I had a very integrated experience and Mary was an important part of my life. To follow Mary's story a little further, she um, still found her education to be segregated. She didn't have opportunities for employment and she got um, tagged by the um, Illinois disability movement and actually went on. She hadn't traveled much out of Chicago, but she went on to be a spokesperson for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, just one more thing I need to say about that is that her testimony about the right to, um, to a full-time job and to um, an integrated 
education was used on the floor of the Senate when Paul Simon, the um, senator from Illinois, introduced the Americans with Disabilities Act. And she went on to actually celebrate with uh, George H. Bush and the full uh, disability community in Washington, D.C. in 1990 when that was uh, passed and signed into law. And so her story and our relationship through the years has been formative. Um, I would also say another person with a disability is my cousin, Becky, who um, also has cerebral palsy and is uh, uses a wheelchair, married another man with cerebral palsy and their entire um, bridal party were um, people with a variety of disabilities. And I was um, honored to be one of the bridesmaids in her um, in her wedding. And she and I speak every Sunday. Uh, she lives in Minneapolis um, area with Andy, her husband. And so each and every Sunday, and then as often as I can get up to Minneapolis, uh, we, uh, we talk, we call each other sister cousins. So I would say that between Mary Linden, who was the generation before me, and Becky, who's my younger um, sister cousin by 11 years, uh, I feel constantly fed by the experience of people with disabilities. And I think I'm a sensitive person, empathic. I've had bouts of you know, clinical depression in the past. Um, and so I feel a lot of sensitivity to the, um, basically the social justice movement that's been involved in the disability story. So professionally, how did this work out? Well, um, I was a musician and am a musician, actually. I play violin and piano and still teach. I live in Asheville, North Carolina right now, even though I work for the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, I'm able to live here in the Blue Ridge Mountains where I get to be exposed to great Appalachian mountain music and other great music traditions. But I was a music major and I studied um, folk music in uh, Scandinavia and got very interested in the people that I was learning folk music from. And I initially began my career um, in gerontology and working with older adults. And so I was very focused on aging and aging services. And, um, and in that track, which led me to a variety of places, I did my graduate work at uh, University of Minnesota, lived for a while in Portland, Oregon, um, went to Columbus, Ohio and started a um, gerontology program, part of Ohio State and Riverside Hospital there, moved on to uh, Georgia, um, to Augusta, Georgia, and then finally Atlanta. Guess what happened in Georgia while I was there? The Olmstead decision. So it turned out that in 1999, when I began to work for Medicaid in Georgia, I ended up being the kind of the gopher <laughs> for the Medicaid director pulling together case files for people with disabilities who were interested and fighting for the right to live outside of an institution and into um, community life. And I had the great opportunity to know 
Lois Curtis and uh, Elaine Wilson and the Atlanta legal aid attorneys who brought the Olmstead uh, case to the Supreme Court. And those of us in the um, disability rights movement based on Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, I um, wrote a lot of the early systems change grants for the state of Georgia to um, analyze who was currently living in institutions and wanted to get out. Um, and um, so I um, basically, right then and there, Olmstead in, kind of enlarged my scope from aging to disability. And all of a sudden, really everything came together for me. Those early experiences with Mary Linden, um, the first person that I met and became actually her agent for her power of attorney um, paperwork through her life. Um, and Becky who and Be Becky and Andy, who I'm still very close to. So my professional life and my personal life came together. And I was also going through a divorce at the time and some depression, which I shared with you earlier, I, arising from that. And there was something about the disability rights movement and the uh, phrase, um, nothing about us without us. And also um, the yearning for freedom and self-determination that really struck a deep chord in me as a person and struck a deep um, chord in me as a professional. And it really um, created a passion that I am convinced will be there the rest of my life until I draw my last breath. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, I went on to work for Medicaid in, uh, in Georgia until I moved to North Carolina and began working for both Georgia and North Carolina um, Department of Health and Human Services on various projects, um, helped with Money Follows a Person, which became the next program that came after the initial systems change grants birthed by the Olmstead um, decision, and have been involved in Olmstead planning in North Carolina. Um, and I facilitate a lot of large work groups around social justice through a model called collective impact to really see our way through complex social change issues um, to desired outcomes. And through my work, I was recruited to the University of North Carolina School of Social Work to join the CARES team, which stands for the Center for Aging and Adult research and educational services. And I've just since um, about six weeks ago been promoted in that role and will be director of that program. And we're doing a number of projects in North Carolina. And I'm also part of some national um, projects having to do with supported decision-making and um, changing the statute in North Carolina to really look at um, unnecessary use of guardianships as a way to um, um, really a path that we're very concerned about in the um, taking away of people's rights um, who have disabilities and interested in 
whenever possible, restoring rights. And I continue to be involved in community living efforts to reduce um, institutionalization and make it more possible for people to live free and self-determined lives. And so I work with lots of different self-advocates, family members, um, um, various professionals throughout the field. And we do workforce development as well for social workers in mm. North Carolina. So I know it was a long answer to one question, but that brings us to you know today. And I have had a very long life. I've been lucky enough to live to 63 so far and, and feel myself just as um, impassioned as ever in this field of disabilities. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause that was, that was like my next question. Like, tell me like a little bit about your work in the school of social work. What kinds of research do you focus on? Mm -hmm. Well, um, so one of the things you'll see in this little logo is that the CARES program is facilitating systems change with and for adults of all ages. Um, and so we have a variety of contracts that um, we work with, and then we may involve students from UNC in these um, efforts in uh, macro social work. Um, meaning you're looking at systems change and and how you know they're how to really navigate a complex system and um, change it in a way that will create um, more opportunities for people with disabilities and more support for their families as well. Um, and so we have a longstanding relationship with North Carolina's Division of Aging and Adult Services. We do some work creating dementia-capable communities. So we are also in the aging um, realm. Our team works on uh, a variety of um, trainings, uh, self-guided, self-paced modules to look at um, the LGBTQ plus community disability and how that affects disabilities and um, also health equity issues. Um, we do a lot of trainings around mental health. We're developing mental health modules right now. We um, have a, a very important initiative called Rethinking Guardianship. And we're in our seventh year on that. We've been promoting less restrictive options to guardianship and trying to make some important changes to the current guardianship system. We've worked really hard on that initiative which is funded by the North Carolina Council on Developmental Disabilities. Um, and we are keeping fingers crossed that our um, partnership with the North Carolina Bar Association will see through um, important legislation in the coming year. Related to supported decision-making and making sure that people have um, the ability to direct their own lives, um, I, I developed with a peer um, a tool called informed decision-making, which does work within institutions, um, adult care facilities to have conversations with people and to actually work with their guardians in some cases as well, to bring um, to light the Olmstead decision, ADA, um, and also the current statute that says that people have the right to um, direct their lives to the extent possible. And um, 
So we have a form that has now gotten um, really integrated into North Carolina's system, um, particularly in the mental health and substance use um, areas and moving into the IDD areas as well, that is used in conversations with people dis um, with disabilities about their interests in moving out of institutions and back into the community. Um, so we we've worked on that as well. Um, finally, we work with the Money Follows a Person project, which is all about transitioning people out of institutions back into the community. Um, we're trying to build community capacity around affordable, accessible housing, the um, development of the direct support professional workforce, development of natural support networks, and also um, um, in addition to affordable, accessible housing, transportation. So we awarded four grants to regions around North Carolina, and we're working with a model that we've been educated around called collective impact to try to move the full, not try to, but to, to move the needle forward and make the community a habitable place for people with disabilities across North Carolina. And so we're very excited and very involved in providing technical assistance to the grantees that we awarded these grants to. Um, and they have this, these monies for five years in order to really produce more evidence of um, affordable, accessible housing, um, more direct care workforce. Um, you know, we that's a crisis in North Carolina. I know it is across the country, um, and um, and um, natural supports as well. Um, so, anyway, we're we have a small team. We've got three people just like me, and then little bits and parts of other people throughout the university to help us with these projects. But we work very hard and are very committed to these projects that are funded through various um, divisions of the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the North Carolina Council on Developmental Disabilities. So I do a lot of relationship building and developing these contracts, making sure things are sustained. And um, we're Impatient people who don't really want to simply have meetings, we want to see results. And so um, the university is um, you know, well thought of, has a lot of credibility, um, the University of North Carolina. Um, and one of the things I that has made this possible is committed to teaching research, but also community engagement and the idea that teaching and research needs to extend outside the walls of the university and into communities across the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that those I think are really important. Um, so if I could just like ask, like, cause I have a quick, I wanted to know like, how do you make sure that, you know, adults of like, you know, basically vulnerable adults of all ages have like determination and the, you know, capability to you know, live an independent life? Like, how can you make that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, there's no, you know, there's no magic bullet. There's no magic 
wand, um, certainly it's challenging. And um, also, I, I have come to know that nothing is one size fits all. You know, there's not one answer for any individual. Each individual has a story, has choice, has a family network or not. And things have to be considered individual by individual. Um, it does get trickier when there are higher support needs that are needed. Um, and I know that both individuals with higher support needs and their families have an important role in advocating for more funding from the General Assembly, for um, better services from the uh, North Carolina um, Department of Health and Human Services, and also have a role in co-creating those realities through private and public partnerships. And so we look for opportunities for that. I think one of the most important things is to make sure that people with lived experience have a voice at the table in a meaningful way. And so it's not always easy, especially in the Zoom era, although sometimes Zoom has been our friend because transportation is a factor that isn't as big an issue on Zoom. Um, but to make sure that um, self-advocates are advocating for themselves. And then also family members are taken into consideration as well and their needs. Um, I think some of it is a, a big opportunity for education that they're across all professions and in the, in the justice system as well, judges who make rulings on adult guardianship, for instance, to know that even if someone needs a lot of support in expressing themselves, that does not mean that they shouldn't have the opportunity to express themselves and to state their expressed desires for what they want in their life. And um, I was able to be part of the National Guardianship Network Summit where we explored this and actually made a recommendation that having um, a supporter or a come along to, for instance, a uh, guardianship court hearing uh, with a person with a disability who is alleged to have incapacity such that they may need a guardianship, that it should be seen as a reasonable accommodation that this supporter is there to really help in the expressed desires of the person with the disability. So sometimes it's an education and advocacy that even though communication is difficult, Maybe there's a communication board that is used, or it's a matter of having a direct support professional along who can um, sort of help somebody understand the words somebody's trying to express, um, that that's really important. Um, and if there is a person with a um, high support needs in terms of an intellectual disability as well, that um, that does not mean that there should not be plenty, plentiful opportunity for choice. Um, and so I think a lot of it is education and opening people's minds to the range of disabilities that people may have and to never, ever, ever count anybody out, no matter what, no matter what. 
So, and, and that's often best told through a story or somebody, you know, like a video. We've done several videos on guardianship and supported decision-making. People have had their rights restored. And it's important to show a range of abilities in those videos so that people can identify themselves or their loved one in the video that can identify the level of support needed and not just cave in and think, um, just because my person has difficulty um, you know, communicating or making decisions that they should be counted out in making decisions with support. Um, so I think it's important. Stories are really important, along with data. Data and stories are an incredible combination. Um, and so that's one way that we really try to tell that story. Finally, um, I kind of point to one of our projects that we do for Money Follows a Person called Supported Living. And that is the idea that rather than somebody being in a group home or a home that is operated through a licensed facility, the person lives in their own home and can decide who is part of their staff. And, um, and this actually can seem at the um, onset as being really impossible maybe for somebody with the highest support needs. But if there is an investment, it can actually be a really great way to support somebody with higher support needs because if something is needed, they can build it into that person's own home as opposed to kind of like removing that person if they're not seen as a good fit in a in a group home or I don't know what they call it in the Pacific Northwest, maybe adult foster care or you know one of uh, in a here in North Carolina they're called um, um, AFLs, um, which is alternative family living homes. But a supported living is having a home of one's own in which you can build the services that you need. And so um, I facilitate a group that's trying to grow that, especially for the higher support need groups. And um, we were successful in getting the state to um, remove a, a, a cap on what would be budgeted for someone in the higher levels of support. Um, and now it's a matter of just getting the providers to know about it and use it. Um, and so there's just so much to making policy changes, practice changes, but then educating, 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 because there's always new staff. There will always be new people or people who are uninformed and maybe have their eyes closed to an opportunity that is right there in front of them. Yeah, and also like like the stigma, people have these sort of stigma around disability. And I think that education really helps like, um, like get people to see disability is not something to be ashamed of. It's rather something to be like proud of and stuff like that. Absolutely, that's so true. It's really true. And I think very often, I think it's true of, of other, you know, historically marginalized groups. So much of it too is just, it's, it's building awareness, having biases challenged, and then actually having relationships with people with disabilities in this case. And, and having those light bulbs go on 
where you think, oh my goodness, absolutely. What was I thinking? I didn't know this. Um, and there's just nothing like building relationships and having, that's why it's so important to pay attention to that nothing about us without us phrase, because um, otherwise people are kind of operating in the dark and don't understand um, the inc incredibly rich resource that's there in the disability community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody, that does it for today's episode of My Friends with Wheels podcast. Today, I talked with Linda Kendall Fields, a professor in the School of Social Work at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We talked about a lot of great things, and I hope you took some important things out of it. Anyway, I, I hope you tune in for more episodes of this podcast. Till then, bye-bye, everybody.